Hey, Alpaca Pals. Okay, before we dive into this episode, I want to hop on and share a quick update. Whenever we create an episode of Alpaca My Bags, we share it with our guests before publishing it. This way, they can provide us feedback and let us know if they're happy with the episode we recorded. So we shared this episode with our guests, and one of them, Jenny, flagged some really important things for us. Yeah, she kindly and gently pointed out some of the parts in the episode where both Nicole, our other guest, and Erin uh, both use person-first language. In the episode, Jenny explained that she and many others in the autistic community feel that identity-first language is a lot more inclusive. So, for example, instead of saying people with autism, we should say autistic people. And you'll hear more about this in the episode. Jenny pointing this out was a really important learning opportunity for both Katie and I. I personally learned that I need to do some work to unlearn some of the harmful language I am using or have used in the past. I need to check myself and my language actively, and I need to ask when I'm unsure about what language to use. Erin and I also realized that we missed an opportunity to ask Nicole what language her son prefers. It could be that he prefers person-first language, uh, but we don't know because we didn't ask and that's our mistake. So we decided that rather than erasing the language that Jenny flagged, uh, we should just leave it in and add this PSA as a reminder of how important it is to ask people what their preferences are. And then we need to honor those preferences. This language is new to me and to Katie, so we're still learning. It's okay if you are too. As you listen to this episode, please listen critically. A good exercise might be to see if you can catch where one of us uses person-first language instead of identity-first. Being able to identify person-first language is super important if we're going to get better at correcting it. All right, now back to the episode. Traveling can sometimes be challenging. It often means changes in our routines, unpredictable moments, new sights, new languages, and new sounds. While all of us are likely familiar with these challenges on some level, for autistic people, they can be especially tough. According to the CDC, about 2.2% of adults in the USA are autistic. Autistic people are part of a larger neurodiverse community. But wait, what's, what's neurodiversity? Well, it's a concept that's been around for a while. In a nutshell, it means that brain differences are just that differences. So conditions like ADHD and autism aren't abnormal. They're simply variations of the brain that can impact the way someone experiences the world. Today, we're exploring how the autism spectrum impacts travel. We'll talk with Jenny, a California-based photographer who was formally diagnosed with autism in adulthood. And we'll talk with Nicole, who owns a travel agency that specializes in travel for neurodiverse people. Welcome, Jenny. We're so happy to have you on the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So could you start by sharing a bit about yourself? Yeah, so I'm a photographer here in the South Bay. I live with my partner, Allie. We've been together for four years. Uh, we have a cat. Oh, I'm jealous that you guys live on the on the West Coast where it's nice and warm and sunny. West Coast, West Coast. It's true. 
So I'll just say off the bat, I myself have had very little direct experience with autism. As far as I know, I don't know anyone personally who identifies as being on the spectrum. So I'm really excited to talk to you and learn about your experiences. But before we dive in, could you share your thoughts on the language around autism? I'll just say, like in researching this episode, so many different terms came up, like I saw the term ASD, the spectrum, neurodivergent, and more. So I wanted to ask if you have preferences around the language that's used when talking about autism. Yeah, so much like anything in language, it's always evolving as we learn more, as trends happen. So obviously, not only is this just my personal opinion, but also in 10 years, it could be totally different. The first thing is person first versus identity first language. In medical fields, you will see a lot of person first language, which would be person with autism, person who has autism. And that is used in an attempt to, you know, separate people from their autism. You know, you're a whole person. You don't, you know, this thing that's afflicting you is not who you are. And while that can be very well intentioned, uh, the vast majority of the autistic community actually prefers identity first language, which is saying um, she is autistic. She's an autistic person. And that is because autism is Literally, I mean, I always like to say it's the software that your brain runs on. It's different than neurotypical brains, and that's fine. It's just a different software. And therefore, it is just as much a part of who you are as a neurotypical brain is as part of who they are. And so being separated from literally the thing that affects how you engage with the world at all times feels weird. And it also makes it feel like autism is some sort of illness or like a disease, which is literally not the case. Can't be cured. Most people don't want to be cured, even if we could be. So definitely using, you know, identity first language is heavily preferred by myself and most of the community. And then there's things like Asperger's is actually uh, not something you can be diagnosed with anymore. A lot of people think of it as autism light. It was actually a term invented by uh, this guy who was a Nazi and uh, he was doing sort of eugenics and the only autistic people that he would, you know, let live were the people that had Asperger's because it was a much lesser in terms of uh, a difference between their brain and a neurotypical brain. So they were considered better. They could be in society effectively uh, more easily than people with behaviors of autism that are a lot different. People still identify with it, you know, if they were initially. So that's definitely, you know, don't correct someone and be like, you don't have Asperger's, you have autism. Because um, again, it's your personal thing, what you want to have um, been said about you. In terms of a diagnosis, anyone that would have been diagnosed with Asperger's is now just diagnosed with ASD. It's all under the autism umbrella. Yeah, so that's a, that's a relatively new thing that's been happening. It's just, it's all ASD now. It's all one big spectrum. Autism is autism. You made so many good points. Like, don't correct someone ever when they share anything about their identity. I think that's so important. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, well, you're clearly a girl. It's like, I know myself. Thanks so much for contributing. We've heard this from other people we've interviewed on the podcast about like other topics as well, like how important it is to use identity first language, because I think it just emphasizes that like it's really up to the individual to decide like how they want to be talked about. So from what I've read, um, children can be diagnosed with autism as young as two years old, 
But in some cases, especially women, it doesn't come up until later in life. And that's what happened with you. Um, You were diagnosed as an adult. How did you know you were experiencing autism before you were diagnosed? I mean, I guess in technical terms, I didn't. It's the thing of you don't, you only know your own experience. For a while, I was assuming everyone experienced the world the same way I did. I sort of realized, you know, in middle and high school that I was a little bit different than my peers in terms of, you know, loud noises really affect me, bright lights really affect me. And in terms of just how my brain works, I felt like everyone was playing games and never really said what they meant. And I would misunderstand people and take things very literally and not understand when they were being sarcastic or when they were not, Um, which is funny because my sarcasm is so deadpan, people think I'm being mean. And I'm like, oh my God, no. I knew there was something that was different and I just figured I was weird, which I am. (laughs) But I, I didn't realize it was, you know, literally my brain is folded differently. And so it was always, you know, I'm just a little different. I'm not like other girls. But it didn't feel like it was in a good, mysterious, sexy way. It was like, I don't like parties because it's too many people. It's too loud. And all my friends were like, we're going to go get wasted at, you know, so-and-so's house. And I'm like, okay, who wants to watch Lilo and Stitch and be sober? Um, (laughs) You know? And so I always felt simultaneously that I was much younger than my age and much older than my age. So I knew there was something. There was something going on. Yeah. So I know that being diagnosed as autistic is a really long process. And I've also heard that it's like extraordinarily expensive. Yes. um, And that the cost of it creates a huge barrier of access. Um, And I was reading like, interestingly, that particularly in the USA, because of this, there's very skewed numbers. So could you tell us a bit about your experience of the formal diagnosis process? Yeah. So I got very lucky in that, you know, as I was figuring out kind of my self-diagnosis, I am in a position financially where I can pay for the (laughs) whole process. It's very tricky, especially as an adult and especially as a woman, because you have to find someone who not only specializes in identifying uh, autism in adults, but also someone who diagnoses women uh, because it is, you know, substantially different than what you see in boys and men. And so, The process is a little bit different when you are trying to diagnose a child because it's all pretty much play-based. You can't ask them, like, are you lonely? What are your friendship groups? They're not um, self-referential enough when they're so young. So it's mostly done through play. You observe them and you go, oh, look, they're, you know, organizing everything over and over and over again. They're, you know, loud noises affect them. And so for me, it was all, uh, I happened to find someone in my area Thankfully, I didn't even have to go to him uh, like in real life because Corona. So uh, we did the whole thing over three Zooms and uh, they were spaced out and everything was very interview style. One thing that is I've found to be true across the board in terms of autistic adults is we're all very self-reflective and really know ourselves very well and may not understand why things are happening, but we know everything about ourselves and we want to you know, talk about it for hours. And that's really um, what it was where, you know, he would ask a question and let me ramble on forever. And I would, you know, I was already doing research on autism in women just to, you know, learn about myself and what I thought might have been the case. And so I kind of knew what 
he would be looking for and I could go, oh, and you know that thing that is an autistic woman thing? Um, I do that. And I ended up answering a lot of questions that he never even had to ask just because I knew what was going on. I didn't even think I might be autistic until uh, my girlfriend Allie and I were doing a little homeschool pod this past summer. Um, and one of the little girls uh, is autistic. And so I was having a hard time figuring out, you know, what of her behaviors were her being rude because she's four and what things were autistic behaviors that she really can't help and needs, you know, assistance with. I don't know anything about autism, so, like, let me Google things. And I started reading articles about autism in women and girls, and I was speechless because it was like they were writing articles about me. Wow. And that's really unnerving <laughs> when, like, <laughs> random people you've never met are describing exactly what makes you, you know, again, not like other girls. You know, it's it's so weird. Like, they wrote this article about you, and they're like, oh, it's autism. And I'm like, no, because autism is very quiet boys who don't do well socially and like science. And I'm, I don't really identify with that. And as I read more uh, and then went into my formal diagnostic process, I mean, I knew before he told me, I was like, oh, oh, I'm very autistic. Okay, thank you so much. And then he was like, yeah, yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah, like the gender thing is really interesting because I was actually reading that boys are four times more likely to be diagnosed with autism than girls and that women um, like yourself tend to be diagnosed later in life. Do you know why it tends to be missed in Women when they're children so yeah, often? so, I mean, even, I mean, I'm not that old. I'm 25. And, and when I was a child that could have been diagnosed, no one was looking at girls. Autism in girls is such a new field. Even if you're looking for, like, papers and research, there's not a lot. And what you do find is from the last 10 years. And then second of all, with masking, which is, you know, a person will hide or mask their autistic traits to fit in and, you know, identify in their peers what is acceptable, what is applauded, and then mirroring that. Even if they were looking at girls, you'd never see it. Because we're all hiding it so well. We're all Women very aren't good functional. at masking everything. <laughs> no, ew, no. Oh my gosh. I had a boyfriend <laughs> once. First of all, big mistake. Um, but I had a boyfriend <laughs> once and uh, even when he had the tiniest cold, he'd be like laying on the floor hacking and I was like, get up. <laughs> and then women like give birth and they're like, um, and, and you know, it kind of hurts and it's like the worst pain a human being can feel. But anyway, so <laughs> even if, you know, teachers and adults were looking for autism in girls, which they weren't, they wouldn't have seen it. Yeah. And I was actually reading, like, I read this one article by someone who was talking about masking, and they were saying that, especially for autistic women, it can result in burnout. Is this something that you've experienced yourself? Oh, yeah. I, it takes a lot of practice. I, I do uh, musicals and plays as well. My degree's in musical theater. And um, I feel like I've spent 25 years doing a character study on normal people. And then I do it because, you know, when I've been super weird and myself, people are like, ew, <laughs> like, why are you like that? Um, not so much as an adult because I only hang out with cool people who accept me. But, you know, um, when you're a kid and everyone's trying to be cool in middle school and everyone's saying, you know, a phrase, then I will say that phrase and that is my new phrase. And I say it every five seconds because Lauren said it and everyone laughed. So now I'm going to say it five times, even though no one is laughing anymore. And it's, you know, wanting to be accepted. And so 
it takes a lot of thought trying to pay attention to multiple conversations, standing with five people, and you can barely do that. And then you're also trying to stand like other people, and you're also trying to, like, make sure your face is doing the right thing. And you're also trying to not say the wrong thing, but you really want to, you know, I'd love to jump in and be like, oh, I had a similar experience, let me tell you. And a lot of people don't like that for some reason, but that's how I relate to people. So it just takes so much effort. And it's not just being exhausted, it's, you know, your executive functioning skills aren't working as well and you, you know, really struggle to take a shower or eat because it's just you did so much and it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to be constant and it's so much to think about. My brain is so loud all the time. Like on that note, could you explain sort of the feeling of autism if that's like possible? Like what does it feel like for you? Um, well, again, it's just for me. I have no idea how anyone else feels. And it's also tricky because I've never experienced anything else. Yeah, so, like, yeah. I don't know if what I'm feeling is the same as other people. I definitely notice tiny details more than people. I used to have this skill in elementary school where I could stare at the field and simultaneously see every single blade of grass that was moving um, and pay attention to all of them. Um, it was very overwhelming, but... I thought it was the cool thing. I was like, I can control the grass, um, which in hindsight is not cool. Uh, <laughs> shouldn't have told people that. That sounds magical to me, honestly. <laughs> it was cool. I was like, I control everything. It's the differences I see. So like, you know, when I'm in dance classes, you know, in college, I would sometimes be positioned really close to the speaker and they love to blast the music because it's fun and we're having fun and we're dancing. And I was like, can I stand literally anywhere else? Because it's, it's not just so loud. Like, it's making me go into fight or flight. Like, I'm incredibly anxious. I feel like I'm going to die. And other people apparently don't feel that way. Um, they're just like, it's a little loud. Can you turn it down? And I'm like, I'm going to die in the corner, like, trying to do my plies. I have little earbuds that I sometimes wear to the grocery store when we check out. Because depending on how I'm feeling, sometimes the beeping of self-checkout is too loud. And sometimes it's not. And it's I'm sure the same volume every time, but it depends on how my day is going, which is a weird thing to explain to people. So I like to say it's living life intensely and living life fully because I feel everything. I see everything. I hear everything. And a lot of times it's super hard, but it's also like really beautiful. If I had the opportunity to like magically become neurotypical, I wouldn't do it. Because I think it would be so boring. I mean, what you're describing sounds like way more fun than my neurotypical experience, honestly. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming sometimes, but like, you know, all the trees are flowering right now in California and it's just like, thank you trees like that's so cool um and and it i can smell them i can see them and i hear you know the wind going through the trees and it's just it's like this incredibly visceral experience and it makes me flappy a little bit um i'm you can't see me this is a podcast i'm flapping my hands yeah so that's you know it makes me stim um which is sort of a different thing um I don't know if that's what you want to talk about, but stimming is a thing that some autistic people do. It's seen sort of as weird because we flap our hands sometimes or we have fidgets, but uh, people stim and people think it's a exclusively neurodiverse thing, but it's actually not true. I made a YouTube video about this. Bouncing your leg when you're anxious is a stim. 
basically any repeated physical movement that you use to when you feel a lot or you don't feel enough um, stimulation is a stim. So everybody stims. And uh, the only reason that autistic people are seen as like weird stimming uh, is because our stims are more noticeable and less socially appropriate. But you know what I mean? Like everyone does it. We just do it a little differently. Mm-hmm. On that note, like, obviously, there are stereotypes about autism. Are there any that you want to just smash? Obviously, the stimming is one. Are there any others? Empathy. Many people think that autistic people are not capable of feeling empathy either at all or to the same extent as a neurotypical person. I think that, you know, in my experience with myself and with other autistic people, we certainly do feel empathy. Oftentimes, to a much larger degree, it just might look different. We, we are perceived as being very non-emotional, unemotional, when it would be appropriate to be very emotional, and vice versa. We are very emotional when it is not appropriate <laughs> um, and does not make sense for a neurotypical person to be very emotional. So it can be a little confusing. And again, like I think this is true for a lot of autistic people. We only see things in terms of our own experience and what we would feel. So I fully stepped in it socially several times where I was in a tricky situation and I was like, hmm, let me think, let me, you know, have empathy. What would be my reaction if I was in this person's situation? And that to me is logical. So I really can't think of another way that they could feel. I mean, I can think of ways, but they don't make sense to me. And so then I react, you know, helping in the way that I would want to be helped. And they're like, ew, no, like this is, why are you doing that? And it's very jarring because I just wanted to help. And then people are mad at me. (laughs) Um, And it's hard. And it's partially, you know, taking things very literally is a very autistic thing. But yeah, Um, I think that's all really useful to hear, um, like for neurotypical people, especially then if you know anyone, if you have autistic friends or encounter autistic people, then you understand like, this is how I can make this person feel more comfortable. Yeah. And honestly, like this is true of anyone with any sort of disability. We're, I mean, I don't want to speak for everybody, but like in general, like if you just ask what we need, we're very happy to tell you and would honestly prefer you ask than like assume you know and do it wrong it's so important just to ask because it shows that you care and you want to learn it's not offensive if you ask genuinely and be like it seems like you're really you know you get overwhelmed really easily you have panic attacks you whatever what can I do when I'm in that situation with you to help because for some people it's distract me um just talk to me some people it's I need to be removed from the situation and I need your help to do that because I really can't move. It's different for every person. And so just asking and, you know, saying, hey, if we get in XYZ situation where you may need help because of your disability, what can I do? You can not only help them, but help other people help them. And that helps advocate for someone who maybe in the moment uh, can't advocate for themselves. Mm hmm. I think like it's such an important point to make that like, I think societally, we really need to normalize just asking people what they need, especially in situations where we're unsure. Across the board, only good things will come from that. 
Um, So I read a Medium article, it's linked in the show notes, and in it, the author explains that while some autistic people have positive experiences in coming out, um, others don't, it doesn't always feel safe to come out. This person was saying there's fear around um, it being dismissed or that family members might judge or shame. Some folks are worried about their job security when they come out to their employers. Um, What has your personal experience been with this? Yeah, so I'm super lucky in the fact that, like, my family is pretty chill. Um, They're like, I mean, they care. It's not that they don't care, but they weren't like, what a disappointment you are. Shame. And they just wanted more information because, again, it's a thing that people don't know a lot about. And what they do know is what they see in media, which is very limited. Um, And all guys. Um, And so it's like, what what do I do with you? I honestly uh, compare it. And again, I've made a YouTube video about this. Um, The comparison between coming out as queer and coming out as autistic is literally the exact same process because you're learning about a facet of yourself that you didn't previously know about or maybe you had some suspicions and you weren't wholly accepting of it. So then you accept that thing about yourself and then you maybe do some research and, you know, take the am I gay quiz five times and or 50 times if you're me and you know, you do the thing and then you have to figure out who you're going to tell. Do you tell everybody? Do you say it publicly? Who do you tell first? How do you tell them? Am I safe to do this? Am I going to, you know, I don't think someone would kick you out for being autistic, but like what might happen? And so it's a fun thing to do if you're in a safe space. It's a not fun thing that I would not recommend if you are not in a safe space because your safety is the most important thing. It's just different for every person. Yeah, because I mean, even the word spectrum, I think like it really points to how everyone's experience is different. And also like, I can say like, I honestly have never had any interaction with with an autistic person. I bet you have. all I knew, I probably have and I didn't know. Yeah. But, and because of that, like the only thing I knew about autism was like the extreme cases that like you see in the media, which are like not representative of the community. It's pretty damaging, I think. Yeah. And the way that people react, like there was um, a little autistic boy that was shot and it was because he was having a meltdown and his, his mom was like, don't freak out. And the police were like, he's crazy. And I'm like, he's a child. And he was also black. So like, that's fun too. I mean, I'd probably have a meltdown if someone pointed a gun at me. Um, So it's, it's very, it's hard when that's all you see. And there's things like, um, you know, as your listeners may be looking for more media representation, Sia just came out with a movie called Music. Don't watch it. It's garbage. Not only is it incredibly ableist and also racist, the thing that bothers me the most on the long list of things that bother me about this movie is that um, she is physically restrained when she has uh, meltdowns. Adults jump on her and push her to the ground and like hold her down until she feels better, which first of all, doesn't work. Second of all, is incredibly traumatic for the child or adult that it's happening to and has also been known to grievously hurt or kill people. The fact that people may mistakenly learn from that and be like, oh, that's what we should be doing is terrifying. And, you know, Sia did admit that she was uh, working with Autism Speaks, which is a group that loves to help autistic people by taking your money and trying to cure it and doing nothing. So they actively harm people who are autistic. They 
have lots of facts that aren't true. And, uh, and they basically, you know, they do, you know, light it up blue and the puzzle piece and all these things that the actual autistic community does not identify with at all. Yeah. And that's just what you see in media, you know, the blue puzzle pieces, blue puzzle pieces. And it's like, no, there's alternatives. Um, there's great uh, resources in other places that you can actually learn things from. And while, you know, April is 100% still Autism Awareness Month, just don't be aware of Autism Speaks. Just ignore them. <laughs> and and here's the thing. Listen to autistic people. Find, and we use the actually autistic hashtag. We have the actual information because it's our experience. We can, anyone can point you in the direction of like really awesome resources that actually are truthful. So we actually wanted to ask you, um, in your experiences traveling, and this doesn't have to mean like some big trip around the world, but like even just traveling like around your own city or state, would you say that being autistic has impacted your experience of travel? Yeah. I mean, not necessarily like it's a negative thing. I don't travel, but it's, I'm more prepared than I think. I do more pre-preparation work than some people. If my friends are like, oh, we're going to this restaurant that you've never been to. Like, I will look at the menu ahead of time. I will Google where it is. So I kind of know ahead of time where I'm going. And and I just need to have those details because I don't do as well with like very abstract, like, it'll be fine. We're just going to wing it. Like, no. So, you know, and then there's a lot of autistic people, myself to a lesser degree, have trouble standing in lines for long periods of time. They have trouble um, with the concept of time. And so, um, like I know in Disney parks, they have uh, a pass for guests who are autistic. And what it does is you, you know, get approved, whatever, I'm autistic. And then when you get to, I don't know, Space Mountain and the line is two hours long and you know you are not going to make it through a two-hour line, you say, hey, like, we have this pass and they say, cool, it's noon right now. Um, come back at two or later because it's a two hour wait, but go ahead and go do some other stuff. Oh. And then they let you go through the wheelchair access. And so you waited as long as you would have waited, um, but you don't have to physically wait in line and like really have trouble. Dietary restrictions is a big thing for autistic, many autistic people. I mean, I guess any restaurant could probably do this, but specifically restaurants at Disney parks. And I've used this before. You, you know, you call ahead and you say, hey, like, I only eat very boring things. Um, could you, I see you make this thing. Could you possibly do it a little bit different like this? And they're super chill about it. And that's really helpful knowing that I'm going somewhere where I can eat. Like, you don't, have those weird interactions because you are able to call ahead of time and they welcome that. And it's so minimized. It's literally not a big deal. It's just there. If you need it, great. If you don't need it, great. You know, um, people say, oh, it's so hard to, you know, communicate with autistic people. But autistic people can communicate with autistic people just fine. It's not the autistic people that's the problem. It isn't the neurotypical people that are the problem. It's they're different softwares, so they can't talk to each other. And just the way you, you said that, it just made me think, like, how do we bridge that gap? Like, how do we bridge the gap between the two softwares so that we can all communicate, like, comfortably? I mean, talk to autistic people. Um, give autistic people places or any neurotypical person positions of power. There's so often, like, autism panels. And it's, like, people who research autism and, like, a mom who has an autistic 
kid and there's no actually like autistic people involved um which is so silly like we have the information we want to give it to you and and these people are on the panel being like we'll never know we'll never know what it's like and it's like we're hello we're right here (laughs) and that's true of um people of color that is true of any minority um where it's like if you just give them a voice at the table we're here to help i mean people are people everyone's a little bit different this is just a difference that we've been taught to fear and feel weird about and it's silly and so education and you know going out and figuring out this information for yourself is going to literally fix all of these problems. And while there are many autistic people and people of other, you know, minority groups that are very happy to educate, it's not our job. And so expecting and relying on people who are autistic or other, you know, um, disabilities or minorities to be responsible for neurotypical education, often without payment, is not correct and you know take advantage of the resources that are available you know through those people hooray but also do the work yourself and unlearn what you need to unlearn and we'll notice and we'll appreciate and where can people find you if they want to learn more about you um you can follow me uh two places on instagram you can follow me and ali at ali and jenny a-l-i-a-n-d-j-e-n-n-i both our names end with i or you can follow me at jenny chapman photography um that's my instagram for my photography business um and you can also just look up jenny chapman on again with an i at the end um on YouTube. Um, I make a bunch of YouTube videos about autism. For Autism Awareness Month, I am actually going to be doing a video every week, which I'm super excited about. Yeah, those are the main places. So I'm around. You can find me. Chatting with Jenny really helped us to understand the experience of autism. And with that, we wanted to talk to someone who is helping to address the barriers of access that autistic people, especially children, face when traveling. So welcome, Nicole. Could you start by introducing yourself? Uh, Hello, my name is Nicole Thibault, and I'm a wife and a mom of three amazing boys. And we live in upstate New York, uh, right outside of Rochester, kind of in the Finger Lakes area. And I'm also an owner of a travel agency called Magical Storybook Travels, uh, which specializes in family travel and travel for people on the autism spectrum. And what is your personal connection to or experience with autism? So I mentioned I have three boys. Um, My oldest is on the autism spectrum. He was diagnosed when he was three years old. I have a middle boy. He is completely typically developing. And then my youngest son has speech apraxia and sensory processing disorder. So we have a mixed bag of things going on, but uh, we make it work. And is that what led you to create your travel agency? Yeah, you know, when we were first diagnosed with autism, um, I started going to a lot of support groups. There was some like mommy and me classes for moms and children on the spectrum. And we would get together and I would, you know, would ask the people who have been um, in the process a little bit longer, you know, how do you travel? Like, how do you make this work? Because I can't seem to leave the house (laughs) on most days without a meltdown. And I just... Imagine getting on a plane and thinking this must be impossible. 
So I would ask other parents, like, how do you do this? And the majority of answers that I got was, well, we, we just don't travel. We don't take family vacations. And that was it was really disheartening. And um, my husband and I, when we first got together, we, we wanted to make family travel a huge priority in our family. We wanted to continue with our personal travels, but just like pick up the kids and go. So we, you know, we started really small with travel. We did a few weekend trips. Uh, we worked our way up to a week vacation at Disney, and we learned a lot about what to do and what not to do on that vacation. And um, slowly we learned the accommodations that each place we went to were offering to families on the spectrum, you know, how to get a disability pass, how to, you know, work dining and make sure that we can find the foods that my son will eat. It's it's a process, but we learned how to make it work. And then I thought, well, what if I could share this information with all those other moms who think that it's not possible for them? And that's really where the travel agency started from. And when you talk about learning how to travel, what were some of the things that you picked up along the way that you realized you could share with other parents when it comes to traveling with an autistic child? Well, a lot of our knowledge that I have in the industry comes from trial and error and learning what works and what doesn't work with my own son. And not to say that he's my guinea pig, but, you know, we're not afraid to try. We're not afraid to get out there and learn how things work. So, you know, for example, with Disney, you know, we learned how to get the what's called the DAS, the Disability Access Service Card. Now it's all wrapped up in your phone, but in previous years, it had been a physical pass. You know, how to go to guest services, how to ask for one, how to answer the questions in a proper way so they understand what the needs are of the child. Yeah. And Jenny, like, really emphasized that the experience of any person on the spectrum, like, there's no two experiences that are alike. So she was really emphasizing that no two autistic people will require the same accommodations. And so I guess that's kind of how it goes with parenting as well. You need to figure out what works with your particular child. And I say that all the time to my clients. I said, I can give you this information, but you know your child best and you are the best advocate for them. So listen to the counseling that I'm about to give you, but know that you're going to have to tweak it based on your child's sensory needs, anxiety levels, any other issues that might come up. I'm usually on hand too when people are on vacation. Text me, call me. We'll talk through a situation if something's happening. If you're having a meltdown in the middle of Disney World and you don't know what to do, I've had people text me and say, help and I'm happy to take the call. Mm -hmm. Just offer a line of support. Yeah. So as a parent of an autistic child, are there any stereotypes or misconceptions that you'd like to smash about it? You know, I think the, the biggest misconception is that, you know, you shouldn't travel or you shouldn't take the leap to try. You know, I, I think a lot of people are very self-conscious about the fact that their child may have a meltdown in public they may be self-conscious about, you know, stimming or, or vocalizations that may happen in public. And those are hard things to get through. You know, people are walking by, people are judging, and it's a difficult thing to work through sometimes, but it has never stopped us. And I encourage other people, don't, don't let it stop you from continuing to get out there, to get in public, to expose your child to all these kinds of experiences that you you incur when you're on your travels. And so especially for my son, we really try to test his boundaries a little bit every time we go on vacation with a new experience, something that may not feel as comfortable as he would like. 
and not to scare him, not to push him, but just to let him experience something new. So, for example, we were on a trip last February before COVID started out to Mesa, Arizona. They're the world's first autism certified city in the world, and they do a great job with kiddos on the spectrum and traveling. And we had never been on a horse before. <laughs> so we went to Sahuero Lake Ranch, and they're an autism certified destination. So their staff has been through autism training, and I called them ahead of time and I said, We would love to try horseback riding, but I don't know how this is going to go. <laughs> you know, we may not get on the horse at all. We may get on the horse and, you know, have so much anxiety that we need to get off the horse immediately. Um, hoping that you guys can provide the support and just um, let us give it a try. And it was amazing. It was one of the most incredible experiences. I watched him just get up on that horse. And I could see there was a little bit of tenseness, a little bit of anxiety, but he worked through it and we rode for an hour through this desert with a cactus and the wild horses and it was just it was it was an amazing experience and I I look back at these pictures now and I'm just so grateful that we're able to try these things. And I guess like a big part of the success of that experience was the fact that the ranch that you visited everyone there was well trained and educated in autism and the spectrum. And the sense I've gotten from yourself and from Jenny as well is that neurodiversity is not normalized and there's a mega lack of education people just don't understand. And it sounds like when they do, you can really have success in just sort of combining both worlds. Yeah, absolutely. So the Visit Mesa Tourism Board is led by a man who has a son also on the spectrum. And he talks so much about going on vacation and getting the stares, getting the looks from people with his son, and really wanting to make Mesa an inclusive community for people to come and visit and travel to. And he has gone through the training himself, and the Visit Mesa Tourism Board has all gone through the training, the autism training. And then they have trained over 50 businesses within their community to welcome guests on the spectrum. So um, the Natural History Museum, the uh, aquarium that's out there, uh, ranches, uh, hotels, so many places on the list. It's just amazing what they've done. And what's great about Mesa is that you can create an entire week's vacation in just one place. I mean, there are many places that have gone through some sort of training or they say they're autism friendly. But to have an entire community come together to become inclusive is just amazing because I can go there for a whole week and not visit every single place that has been certified. What makes a city or a community autism certified? And I'm also curious if there are other places around the U.S. or the world that have this certification. I think there are two levels of autism training. There's going to be something that's going to be autism friendly. And they probably made some accommodations and they probably have a personal connection with autism. So they're saying, yes, I'm autism friendly. Then there's going to be a place that's autism certified. And that's a place that has usually gone through some sort of class or formal training to make sure that all their client facing staff understands autism, how to deal with people on the spectrum, how to make accommodations for people who are having issues. So there are a ton of places now that are becoming autism certified because they really want to put that rubber stamp on themselves to say, 
we're open for business and we're welcoming all kinds of families. There's a company called IBCCES, the International Board of Credentialing and Continuing Educational Services. They have an autism certification program, and there are also other companies like Culture City. Uh, there's also another one called Double Check, which offer differing levels of certification. Mesa has become the first city because its tourism board has gone through the certification as well as so many businesses in the area. Other places, singular places, have become autism certified, like Sesame Place in Langhorn, Pennsylvania, um, SeaWorld, um, the Beaches Resorts in Turks and Caicos in Jamaica. There are three that have been through the certification. And again, that means that their staff has been trained. Um, they have certain accommodations available in each location. And there's usually some sort of signage or social story or something that the guests can access before they go to the destination to know what's available to them. Jenny actually expressed to us how important she thinks it is to ask autistic people about their preferences rather than assuming, especially when it comes to travel. I'm not sure how old your son is, but how do you communicate with him about what he's interested in doing or what he might not be interested in doing or how he feels about a travel experience? So uh, my son's 16 now, 16 and a half. So he's, he's very involved with our travel decisions. You know, we kind of ask him, you know, would you be comfortable doing this? Is this something that's just like too far out of your comfort zone? How can I help you get a little bit more prepared? And this is where I find YouTube videos <laughs> to be a great resource because it really lets you kind of get an idea of what's about to happen before it happens to say, yeah, I think I can do that. That looks like a fun experience. Or, oh, hell no, I'm not going to do that in a million years. And we've had both responses. Um, you know, I think that zip lining and um, parasailing are never going to be on the top of his list. Um, not on mine either. <laughs> no, food, food tours are never going to be on the top of his list. He has a very limited food repertoire. He eats like five, six things. But there are other things that he's happy to try, like the horseback riding. He tried that. We've done some safari experiences. I mean, not actual in Africa safaris, but other experiences where, you know, we were on a truck. It was a little noisy. We're seeing animals. And he was fine with all those things. So I think for us, it's having a very open and honest conversation with him. He knows about his autism. He knows about things that are upsetting to him. And we talk it through and we're able to do that with him. Other families, I think it's more difficult because you may not be able to have that kind of open conversation with them about what can you handle? What's going to be a problem for you? And I think that's really where the parents as the advocates can come in and say, yeah, I think we're going to skip this one because I don't think this is going to be in their comfort zone, but maybe we'll try something like this over here instead. Mm -hmm. On your site, you shared the statistic that according to autismtravel.com, 87% of families with a fam family member with autism don't currently take vacations, but 93% of those families would be more inclined to travel if autism-friendly accommodations were available. So you mentioned autism-certified communities and cities. What can accommodations do to become autism-friendly? Well, the ones that I've seen that are, mo I think, most successful are places like Sesame Place. 
So they have guest services available when you first walk in the door to walk you through how to get the disability pass. Um, you have noise-canceling headphones that can be borrowed from the, the guest services desk. They also have a uh, quiet room that you can access. So if your kid is in sort of a sensory overload moment and you need some quiet, you can access this room. Uh, signage is very important to let people know where those quiet rooms are. So if there's signage with you know, maybe it's sort of an autism symbol on it to let people know where to go if they need some help. Training the staff is also huge. Again, so that those people know, okay, I can see that this person is having an emergency, a sensory moment where they need some help, how to interact with that guest and help them so that they can get through that moment and again, rejoin the fun again. So those things are really important. I love it when a destination or um, a travel supplier has a social story available on its website. A lot of times those come in like a PDF where you can download it. Um, Royal Caribbean has one where you can fill in your child's information. Yes, I'm staying on floor seven or deck seven and my room number is this one and we're going to be going to the kids club so that they can start to feel comfortable with what's going to happen on their trip. And of course, I love it when they have social story videos on their website so that they can, again, see the experience, kind of hear the sounds of where they're going, get a feel for what's going to happen. Sesame Place has great social story videos. Um, my company produced them, so I'm a little plug. <laughs> um, <laughs> and those are found on the Sesame Place's channel, the YouTube channel. They just hit 20,000 views. So yay. Um and I, I think those those kinds of resources can really help a family get through uh, the planning process and understand what accommodations are available when they get there. And so how do you use, because um, you make social story videos, how do you use them to help your child? So it's, it's an interesting story how social, uh, Spectrum Travel social story videos got started. This is my uh, video production company that makes the social story videos. Um, I had a client who had never cruised before and their son was on the spectrum and had just a ton of anxiety about what the bathroom was going to be like on the cruise ship. You know, he had never been on a cruise ship, wanted to know what does the toilet look like? So I said, okay, well, if you see a video of what the bathrooms look like on the cruise ship, will you feel better? Will you feel more calm? And he's like, yeah, let's, let's take a look. So I, I searched up on YouTube, a whole bunch of stateroom tours that people have done um, over the years on different cruise ships and found his cruise ship, found the bright bathroom. And we watched the video and he's like, oh, okay, so it flushes here and this is what it's like. And he, he just had the sense of calm come over him like, all right, now I know. And then he could like concentrate on being excited about the trip because the anxiety piece for him was gone. He had alleviated that stress. And now he's like, well, what else can we do? You know, what's the pool like? And he wanted to see all the stuff and he was so excited. And just seeing him transform from having all this anxiety to so excited about the trip, just again, was sort of that like aha moment. Like, well, if I can do this for him, imagine what I can do for so many kids if this was available and actually specific to families on the spectrum. I mean, a lot of the YouTube videos that I find aren't quite appropriate. <laughs> you know, it's just some random guy like in his underwear filming uh, his stateroom, <laughs> you know, and he see pans towards the mirror. There he is. <laughs> um, not appropriate. But, you know, so that's where I thought, well, if we could film videos that were made for people on the spectrum and made for the parents of kids on the spectrum. So they list out 
What are the accommodations that are available so it educates the parents so that they know what to expect when they get there and how to access those accommodations and make it easier for their kids? But it also introduces the kids to the destination so they can see these things. You know, how do I pin trade at Disney? Oh, this is the procedure. This is what we're going to do. How to use the pass and get into a, a, a ride line so that you don't have to stand in the long line. You can access the disability line. You know, saves parents a ton of time, ton of stress if they know all these things ahead of time. So really preparing the families before they leave is just so key in, uh, in my process. And I think like, it's actually such a relatable idea of just like wanting to know what a place is going to be like before you go there, because it gives you a sense of security to know in advance. So what steps do you think the travel industry sort of at large can take to become more accessible for neurodiverse people? Like what would be some easy, actionable things that um, the industry can work on? In a perfect world, I would love for every destination to go through some sort of training, but I know that's not going to happen. I think at the minimum, there should be some sort of like small training of some kind, especially for people who work in guest services, to let them know, you know, you're going to have all kinds of people come in here and some, yes, are going to have kids or adults on the spectrum. And these are the things, the actionable items that you can do to help them get through the process of like learning how to be and enjoy the parks or the resort or the cruise ship or whatever it is. So even just a small training could totally help. Other than that, I think um, having some sort of social story, whether it's a PDF or a video or even just a really good YouTube channel to give tours of different parts of a cruise ship or what some of the rooms look like in a hotel or a kid's club or something like that so that they can get used to what things are going to look like. I think that would, you know, really help a ton. And then also have sensory kits on hand. So I usually travel with a small backpack that has noise-canceling headphones in them, maybe a fidget toy. Scented lip balm can also help when you're smelling something like garlic or something that's offensive to somebody with autism to just have them be able to sniff something that smells like fruit or vanilla or something nice. So if they had borrowable sensory toolkits in their guest services area, I think that would be a huge help because I'm going to say 85% of all problems for people with autism when they're traveling is probably going to have something to do with sensory overload. That would help out a lot. Yeah. And those are some pretty simple things to do. Absolutely. So maybe as people like ourselves can start advocating for more accessibility just by mentioning like, hey, you could just film a little video, put it on YouTube, and that would be really helpful in making your space more accessible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And then lastly, do you have any advice for people on the spectrum or parents of children on the spectrum who would like to travel but are feeling nervous or anxious about it? Well, I have a couple a couple of tips. Um, one don't be afraid to try to travel. If you're nervous and you haven't done it before, start small. Do a day trip, then do an overnight, then do a weekend, and then sort of build up from there once you gain confidence and know that you can handle things that will come up. I think that's really important to just keep trying and know that like how things are right now doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be the same a year from now or two years from now. Your kid's going to get older, be more acclimated to you know, outside world and their bubble's going to get bigger. And then you just keep trying. 
I think the other huge thing is, is to try to work with a certified autism travel professional. But if you work with somebody who's who's in the travel industry, but also very knowledgeable about where to go, who's autism certified, who's autism friendly, you know, great destinations. I think that cuts out a ton of um, preparation and also worry for the parents who are thinking about taking that family vacation. So don't be afraid to try to work with an agent who's, who's certified in this area. Awesome. And are there any resources that you could mention for helping people like find access to certified travel agents and etc? Sure. If you go to autismtravel.com, they have a couple of different resources there. You can search for a certified autism travel professional on their website. You just click in your, um, your zip code and you'll be able to find one in your area. Um, and then they also have a list of the certified destinations on their website. So if, if you just click destinations, it'll link down to all the different places in the U.S. and around the world that have gone through the certification process. That's probably the, the biggest hub there is. Um, other p- places that are just autism friendly that I've been to, I've reviewed on my blog itself. You can always check out my blog on MagicalStoryBookTravels.com. Um, you can also find our social story videos on stssv.com. Uh, that's Spectrum Travel Social Story Videos. It's also a website too, but we also have a YouTube channel, so you can find them both there. Free to use, anybody who wants to check them out. But YouTube is always just a great source. I mean, again, you might find somebody in their underwear, but <laughs> you can usually search up places and see if you can find walking tours of, of guests who have been there before and use those if we don't have one, a social story already made. Alpaca Pals, we have linked lots of resources related to autism in the show notes. And if you go to autismtravel.com, you can access a travel directory specifically for travelers on the spectrum. Alpaca My Bags is written and hosted by me, Erin Hines, and it's produced by Katie Lore. If you enjoyed this episode, go ahead and leave a review on your podcast app, or you can show us your love on Patreon. Pledging $5 a month or more directly supports the making of this show. The link to our Patreon is in the show notes. That's all for now, Alpaca Pals. I'll talk to you again in two weeks, and I hope you all get to alpaca your bags safely and soon. And take your vaccine. Bye.